Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Twin Bills, the Red Sox podcast from the sports department of the Providence Journal. Featuring Red Sox beat writer Bill Koch, along with sports editor Bill Corey. Now, Twin Bills. Hello and welcome to this week's Twin Bills, a Red Sox podcast. This is Bill Corey, sports editor of the Providence Journal. I'm in downtown Providence as usual, and with me is Bill Koch, Sox beat, uh, beat writer. Hey, Bill. Bill, how are you? I am good, uh, and the Red Sox are still good. Uh, eight and a half games uh, up in the American League East as we, as we uh, record this on Friday. Uh, 27 games to go, and uh, a little bit of a... I don't know if it was quite panic time uh, about a week ago, but the Red Sox did something they hadn't done all year, and that's got swept in a series. Yeah, they got swept uh, at Tampa last weekend. Lost three games to the Rays, who, you know, upon their win on Sunday, had won eight in a row. And, right. and they're very hot, pitching very well. Uh, you got the feeling when the Red Sox lost the first two games and had Blake Snell going in the last one. Uh, Snell's making a big push for the American League Cy Young Award here over the last, you know, say, eight weeks of the season. Uh, you, you had a feeling that it might not be Boston's day, and it certainly wasn't. Uh, for them to bounce back and, and sort of right the ship here after losing, I think it was six out of eight at one point. Um, and mainly to, to see the bats get going again, Mookie Betts in particular, right? I think it's been a very encouraging sign here as they've faced the Marlins and, and in that first game uh, against the White Sox on Thursday. Sure. And, you know, you figure something like that was going to happen because the Red Sox were just rolling along uh, sort of too smoothly. They were going to hit a bump in the road. Tampa Bay is one of those pesky teams, good young players, good young pitchers. Uh, You know, they they outscored the Red Sox in that series like 24 to 5, which is very unlike this uh, this Red Sox offense. But as you said, the Red Sox bounced back. They had a a sweep of of a short two game series against the Miami Marlins. Uh, and let's touch on that a little bit because on Wednesday night it was a remarkable show to watch if you were uh, if you were a Red Sox fan and you saw them put up 11 runs in one inning. Yeah, there were a lot of things going on Wednesday night. Uh, I think the the highlight of it though was the 11 run seventh um, hits in 12 straight at bats, which was the first time that's ever happened in Major League history. Uh, you had a, a sacrifice bunt sprinkled in there, which technically is not an at bat. You had a walk in there, which is technically not an at-bat. But for them to have 12 hits in an inning, that's something that I've seen maybe in a Little League game or a high school game, um, not necessarily at that level. And most times when you have an inning where you score that many runs, you get a little bit of help, whether it's walks or the the opposing team makes a couple errors here or there. The only error that was made was on a Blake Swihart double down the line in right field where Rafael Ortega dropped the ball on the transfer and let Swihart go to third. Not really a substantive play. It wasn't like a ground ball that was kicked or a pop-up that was dropped or something that would have been an out. Uh, so just to see Boston so locked in in that inning, uh, sending 15 men to the plate, 
you got the sense that you were watching something historic. You didn't realize how historic it was until after they went into the record books. Yeah, it was. It was amazing to watch. Uh, I believe that was the inning that uh, Andrew Benintendi made all three outs. Is that, am I rem- remembering that correctly? He, he did. He sacrificed, bunted back to the pitcher, and then he grounded into a double, double play, play to end the inning. That's and, right. You know, Alex Cora said in Chicago on Thursday that uh, he was giving Benintendi a little bit of a hard time uh, <laughs> you know, for making all three outs in an inning when his teammates went uh, you know, whatever they went, 12 for 12. Right. <laughs> uh, so not the best look uh, right. for Benny, but he'll have other times, uh, I'm sure, and has had other times previously this year. Sure, sure. So just a couple of quick notes from that game. Mookie Betts, uh, obviously, three for four with three RBIs that uh, that night. And, and Eduardo Nunez had a nice night as well. Three for four, two RBIs, score three runs. And we've been seeing a little bit of pop out of him uh, as of late. Yeah, he said uh, his right knee is feeling better. That's obviously the knee that he injured uh, toward the end of last season and in the playoffs. Uh, this looks like the guy the Red Sox traded for. Yeah. Uh, when they got him from the Giants, I know he hit eight home runs after Boston acquired him last year. Four of those were in his first nine games. Yeah, he came in. He came on like a storm when he when he first arrived. Yeah, you said who? who Who's this guy? Know, we we <laughs> right. knew we, we knew this guy from when he played with the Yankees. Yeah, but not like that. You look at his numbers when he was with the Giants, and you think, well, he's going to be a nice utility addition. Yeah, and he ended up playing every day for them down the stretch. Um, you know, he's been a key part of their lineup this year with Dustin Pedroia hurt and Rafael Devers in and out. Uh, not as good defensively at second base, but at third base he looks very comfortable, yeah. and, and that's a spot that he's probably played more of. Uh, you know that inning, you had the bottom four guys in the lineup all get two hits in the seventh alone, right? And Mookie Betts have two hits in the seventh sure. when it went back to the top. So, you know, just a phenomenal uh, inning from so many angles. There's so much to dissect there. Uh, you could go various different directions. I, I think the way that I went in my game story was. There are very few printable words to describe what the Red Sox <laughs> just did to the Marlins. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but, you know, you, you bring up a good point about Nunez, and I think that's the mark of, of really good teams is that you get these contributions from players that you may not necessarily expect. It. Obviously, we all expect uh, by this point of the season Mookie Betts to keep just rolling along, J.D. Martinez to have a MVP-worthy year, uh, Andrew Benintendi still uh, still chugging along. But when you have players like Brock Holt and NY, or Nunez coming up big from time to time, uh, you know, that's that's the mark of a really good team. Yeah, and the perfect example in that inning, the Red Sox were 9 for 49 pinch hitting this season, going into that seventh inning on Wednesday night. Yeah. Blake Swihart and Brock Holt both got hits yeah, it made pinch hitters. It made uh, Alex Cora look like a genius. Yeah, they went two for two yeah. in that inning. They went from nine hits to 11, uh, to 11 for 51, which is over the 200 mark if, if my remedial math skills... Uh, <laughs> You know, kick in, which right. is something that they were below before, and, and and you know, it just speaks to what you said there. You know, there was there was just nothing. It, it was coming from all angles. Yeah, it, it was coming from all angles, one through nine in the order. And you know, there have been times this year where certain guys have come through in big spots. I, I think the biggest thing though that's come out of these last three or four games is the Red Sox have two guys who can carry the offense. J.D. Martinez is one. Mm-hmm. Mookie Betts is another. Which they've been like, doing for much of the season, obviously. And it looks like Betts is starting to get it going again. Right, here. right. Yep. Uh, so the other side of that game, uh, maybe not so rosy, but hopefully not too serious if you're a Red Sox fan, is what happened to the starting pitcher, David Price, who uh, only went three innings, uh, allowed three runs, gave up five hits, and then took a wicked 
uh, line drive off his uh, pitching hand, uh, wrist, I guess. Uh, so what's the deal with David Price? Uh, it was first, thank goodness he's okay. And then he got his hand up. Because it was a terrifying moment. Yeah, right at his face. Uh, you're looking at a 102-mile-an-hour line drive right back at his face. Uh, and the fact that he was able to get his hands in front and then compose himself to get him out at first base right, right, was yeah. remarkable. Right. Um, you know, but you're picturing the worst. I, I remember I was in college when Bryce Flory got hit by a line drive oh, gosh, yeah. against the Yankees. Right. And that was just a horrible scene. Yeah. Uh, you know, it ruined his career. Right. Um, you know, to say nothing of his quality of life pretty much ended his career mm-hmm. um you know so price he has a left wrist contusion he did not make the trip to chicago uh it's very unlikely that he would make his scheduled start monday against the braves uh, and i think the point to make there is twofold first you're in a situation where you're up eight and a half games with 27 left you don't need to force him out there mm-hmm. the second thing is that monday comes after the roster expansions to 40 and so if you're the red sox you have to figure that you, know, you might get justin haley there or william cuevas there or marcus walden or bobby pointer guys who we've seen throughout the season and you know in the case of haley or cuevas if they line up in terms of when they're pitching for Pawtucket here at the end of the season they might be able to give the Red Sox some length alongside Hector Velasquez and Drew Pomeranz. You can afford to have a starter go a little short or to be able to skip a starter here because of the numbers that you're going to have on your roster and in your bullpen. Sure, and and I think one of the keys is what you just uh, said earlier. It's that eight-and-a-half game lead. That's you don't right. feel like you're living and dying on every game, you know. Um, uh, the lead, I think, got down to uh, as close as six games uh, over that stretch with the uh, with the with the Rays. But uh, it's you know it's back up to eight and a, eight and a half now. Uh, you know, so there's a little bit more breathing room. So sure, if you can if you can sit uh, David Price, make sure he's he's as close to 100 percent as possible. Sort of the same thing they've been doing with Chris Sale. Why the heck not? Yeah, and the shame of it was that David Price had pitched very well into that start. His previous yeah. six, he pitched a 1.09 ERA. He'd only given up one run in, I think it was 40, 41 or 44 innings. Uh, had thrown the ball the best he's had uh, since since he signed with the Red Sox. Right, right. And uh, you know, to see him be hurt, you just hope that this isn't a serious thing that he's able to get back out there quickly. I know Chris Sale threw again uh, in Chicago on Friday. Uh, he sort of ramped things up in terms of playing catch every day. He's into a throwing program now. You're probably going to see him make a start, whether it be the second week of September or the third week of September. He will be back. Uh, Eduardo Rodriguez is going to come back and make a start on Saturday in Chicago. So you're really seeing the Red Sox pitching staff now get a little healthy uh, at exactly the right time of the year. Absolutely. Um and uh, just uh, touching on the offense a little bit more, we saw more of that offense last night when the Red Sox uh, fell uh, down uh, to the uh, Chicago White Sox to an early 3 nothing hole and then a 4 nothing hole. And then in the seventh inning, again, they come back, they, they storm back to tie it up, and then they put up five runs in the, uh, in the top of the ninth and basically turn it into a laugher, win the game 9-4. to Mookie Betts goes 2-4. Uh, um, 
J.D. Martinez has a hit. Uh, Ian Kinsler comes through three for four. So you're seeing these contributions up and down the up and down the order. You know, not the best night for for Rick Porcello, but heck, when you put up uh, you know when you put up nine runs, how good do you have to be? Yeah, these guys seem to be content with just sort of playing the first six innings, not scoring, and then challenging themselves in the last three. <laughs> right. uh, I wouldn't necessarily suggest that for October. No, but it's working for now. Yeah. Uh, the go-ahead run in the ninth was driven in by Jackie Bradley Jr. and and I want to just highlight what he's done here uh, over the last 60 games Um, if you look at the way that he's been able to produce out of the nine spot in the order he's going to give Mookie Betts a chance to drive in some runs and Andrew Benintendi a chance to drive in some runs Uh, Bradley's slash line over his last 60 277 average 341 on base 495 slugging uh, which is an 836 OPS his first 60 games this season 181 batting average 276 on base 285 slugging 561 OPS he was as close as you could get to an automatic out Mm -hmm. in terms of an everyday player at the bottom of the Red Sox order this is Alex Cora and Jackie Bradley and the hitting coaches Tim Hires and Andy Barquette being rewarded not only for their persistence but for their patience with this player. No, it really, it really is a tale of two seasons for for JBJ. Um, as bad as you could be early in the season, as you said, almost an automatic out. Uh, but you know that defense has always been so sterling that I, I think they they sort of held their nose and kept him in the lineup. And as we've said before on the podcast, you're getting so much contrib- so many contributions from other uh, other players in that lineup that you could sort of carry that for a while. You don't want to carry that into October. Uh, but it looks like you're not going to have to because he has been hitting uh, much better lately. And, you know, when he's hitting, and, and I have this uh, sort of running uh, argument with some friends all the time, but, you know, if you get 230 or 240 out of Jackie Bradley, you take it because what he gives you defensively is so good. And he's in this lineup that, that uh, you know, obviously can, can hit and hit with power that you don't really need that traditional center field thumper uh, to, to sort of anchor the lineup. You get a 240 hitter with speed, great defense, you take it. Yeah, you think about for the better part of the first four months, it was before Christian Vasquez got hurt. Your last two guys in the order were the catcher and Jackie Bradley, right. whether it was Vasquez and Sandy Leone and Jackie Bradley. For the most part, Vasquez had one decent stretch early this year. Sandy Leone had one decent stretch earlier this year. For the most part, those two spots were going to be out. Yeah. And they were giving you value in other ways. Leone has obviously become a favorite of the pitching staff. Uh, you know, Rick Porcello, Chris Sale, David Price especially. Right. Those are three guys who you want to keep happy. Uh, Christian Vasquez being hurt has opened the door for Blake Swihart, who is their best offensive catcher. You're seeing him start to hit now. The more regular time he's gotten, uh, he's at first base on Friday night. He's the type of guy who can play multiple positions, is athletic enough to play in the field, to run the base as well. Uh, And if you're going to have Bradley doing this in the nine spot, as I said earlier, it's just going to make Mookie Betts that much more potent at the top of the order. Uh, For sure. Um so let's uh, shift a little bit and take a look around the the uh, the, um, the league, or more precisely, around the American League East. And when I say that, all I mean is the Yankees, that's <laughs> because that's really right. there's nobody else worth looking at. No, that's right. But the, the Yankees made a move today, uh, and uh, I think it speaks uh, a little bit about what they expect from. Um, uh, the injured Aaron Judge, if anything, uh, and they have acquired in a trade Andrew McCutcheon. Yeah, Andrew McCutcheon, uh, longtime Pittsburgh outfielder, uh, spent 
he went to the Giants this year, um, former National League MVP, uh, right. uh, finished in the top five of the MVP voting three times while he was with the Pirates. A very good player. Um, you know, someone who you, you certainly could put in a lineup in right field, in left field, even in center field, uh, Yankee Stadium, can handle the bat from the right side. He's still only 31. Um, you know, he he's declined offensively uh, since the 2014 season. Uh, and actually, since the 2013 season, he won the MVP that year. He hit 317. His average has gone down since then. He's only hitting 255 this year. Um, yeah. You know, OPS went from 911 in that MVP season to 952 the next year. And now he's at 772. Right, so right. not necessarily doing as much damage. But I think the biggest takeaway from this is that Aaron Judge is really having a problem here. Uh, he fractured his right wrist, hasn't played in weeks. And, you know, to hear the Yankees tell it now Brian Cashman said this a couple weeks ago that they they got the timeline wrong on Judge Hmm. they initially said it was only going to be three weeks that's what they felt like it was going to be for me I'm just thinking back to you know my brother was a college baseball player he broke his hand in a game Um, they said he was going to be healed in four to six weeks the bone is healed but you don't feel the same right for maybe twice that long Uh, so in Judge's case there was no guarantee that he's going to come back, be an everyday player, and be a difference maker at this point. I think acquiring McCutcheon puts him into right field, makes Giancarlo Stanton the everyday designated hitter. He's hit the ball very well here sure. in the last two months. And you do want to keep him out of the outfield if you can. Well, you do, because what happens if he runs into the wall? Right. You know, there goes your offense. You're, you're going to have Brett Gardner in left field and Aaron Hicks in center. Yeah. Uh, both of those guys are, are fine options defensively, offensively. Gardner gives you a veteran at bat. Hicks uh, has hit more than 20 home runs this year. He gives you plenty of pop out of center field. But the Yankees the other night had Shane Robinson in right field. And all due respect to Shane Robinson, he's a utility guy. You can't have him in the lineup when you're trying to chase the Red Sox and solidify that wild card spot. And so I, I think judges sort of slow progression here kind of forced their hand and made them go out and make a move at the deadline right right uh, you said something there that that uh, piqued my interest when you say chase the Red Sox I wonder if they're really doing that anymore you know I mean eight and a half games up 27 games to play shouldn't they just be focusing on getting that wild card at this point I mean there's still there's still a chance right I mean they still play the Yankees I want to say six more six times. more times so obviously there's still a chance but um you know, uh, you know, I mean, you're still going out, going out to try to win the game, but uh, I got to believe that they feel that the uh, that the division is just about gone by now. It, it should be, but the difficult part of this, Bill, as you know, is the format being what it is now. The wild card is one and done. Yeah, it's one game and you're out. Right, and you know, so even if you host Oakland or Seattle or you know whoever it may be who sneaks into that second spot, do you feel great about one and done? E- even at Yankee Stadium. I would much rather have a five-game series where I've won the division and I can suffer through maybe one bad game. That puts a lot of urgency and a lot of pressure on your team having to win that one game playing. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, uh, anything can happen in a one-game playoff. But I actually like the two wild-card team uh, system more than the one wild-card team because under the one wild-card team system, 
the wild card team essentially was treated as a division winner, right? Yeah. I mean, they were essentially equal to winning the division. And you know, now with the with the two wild card teams, you know, the division becomes that much more important. There's a little bit more of a impetus to win that to win that pennant or to win that division. No, it's a very good point, and I think that's why the Yankees aren't going to give up uh, until the final day. They know that they have six games left with the Red Sox. It will be up to Boston to win at least one game in those series. Uh, you know, if you get swept twice, you lose six games in the standings. If you lose two out of three, you only lose one game in the standings yeah. each time. So the most you could lose is two. Um, and if you're Boston, realistically, you want to go to Cleveland and New York, it's going to be your last road trip of the year, the third week of September. If you could somehow get two out of three in both spots, you're going to have this wrapped up before you come back to Fenway Park for the end of the year. Well, uh, what I have to do is I have to dig up that uh, sound from that podcast somewhere in the middle of the summer where you predicted that this last Yankee series won't mean anything. And it's it's looking like you're going to be right. I mean, we're not quite there yet, but uh, when the Red Sox do host the Yankees for the uh, the final three games of the, of the season, September 28th, 29th, and 30th, uh, we'll see if those games are actually meaningful and there's there's anybody on the on the field that we recognize. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I make a lot of mistakes, and I'm the first to admit that. But uh, that one right around the All-Star break, I had a pretty good feeling about. Only because I I saw the Yankees is struggling for starting pitching. Um, and I just saw the Red Sox having this sort of vibe around them this year. They they sort of have this, this sort of Teflon uh, feel to them in the clubhouse where <laughs> they could lose two or three games, and it's not a big deal. Alex Cora isn't going to allow it to become a crisis. Right. The players are very comfortable and very relaxed, and they have been since the beginning. And you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that they're playing this well while they're feeling good. I, I think that that environment has allowed the best to come out of them. The word is pixie dust. That, that's what a good friend of mine calls it uh, when the Red Sox seem to be doing no wrong there. They're bit. playing with a little bit of pixie dust on them, which is uh, you know, uh, always a good thing because you could use the, all the help you can get. Uh, so w- one other thing I, I'd like to touch on here, Bill, is uh, something that came up last week and, and you were part of the... Uh, you, you were part of the uh, the media scrum there on the field with JD Martinez, and that's the uh, the whole Instagram post uh, where there was a, a, a story about uh, a post that he had several years ago. It was a meme that uh, he had uh, shared on Instagram, a photo of uh, Adolf Hitler. There was a quote: "To conquer a nation, first disarm its citizens." Uh, and uh, JD Martinez. Uh, commented uh this is why i will always stay strapped and you know for the life of me i'm not sure why uh i should be offended by this i know that uh there's been some columns written um but uh you know i thought uh, i thought martinez handled it well i mean it's obviously in this in today's society when things like this come up uh, there always has to be a response uh what was your take on the whole thing yeah it was uh you know, it was a post made in January 2013. Martinez was playing for the Astros at the time, and he's just another baseball player who's been stung by social media this year, whether it be uh, Josh Hader for the Brewers or Trey Turner for the Nationals or Michael Kopech, who pitched against the Red Sox tonight. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of those guys were, they had tweets in the past. They were racist in nature or homophobic in nature. Um, you know, much worse than what J.D. Martinez did here. Um, at best, I think he was uneducated. At worst, I think he was ignorant. Um, first, you can't attribute the quote to Adolf Hitler. There, there was no 
definitive proof that he actually said that. Right. Um, so it is factually inaccurate to mm-hmm. start with. Uh, the second thing is that if you're looking to make a point about anything, a salient political point, you can't use Adolf Hitler to do it. Right. You're right. talking about one of the worst human beings to ever walk the earth for what he did to Germany, to the Jews. Um, you know, to an entire society and race of people, um, you know, he plunged the world into a world war, uh, pretty much through his own maniacal uh, philosophies on society and the way that we should be. Um, so, if you're going to try to use him to advance a political position, it's just not somewhere that you can go. You have no credibility doing something like that. Um, in my mind, I, I think the unfortunate thing for Martinez is that he thinks that. Part of this came out because he's playing in Boston. And right, right. They asked him why this came out, and the answer was Boston. You know, and and if he's if he's the utility infielder for the Twins, maybe people don't care. He might be right on that point, but yeah. that doesn't erase the fact that he posted it in the first place. Mm-hmm. That it was ignorant and, and a bit uneducated, and you know certainly lacked any sort of factual basis. Uh, and that is on him, no question. Mm-hmm. How folks react to it. Um, how they choose to interpret it, that's up to them. But what he could control was the post itself and the sort of reason that he made that post. Um, and it wasn't necessarily coming from the most informed place. No, that, that's mind. that's that's fair. I mean, um, you know, using Hitler is never a good idea. And the fact that there's been no evidence that Hitler actually said anything like that or said that in particular, um, you know, uh, kind of opens him up for criticism, opens J.D. Martinez up for criticism. But, you know, I did, um, you know, uh, when he was speaking with the uh, the uh, the media scrum there and, and he talked about his own family coming from Cuba and fleeing a, a ruthless dictator. I mean, I, I found that to be genuine. I don't think he was sort of making an excuse or trying to uh, make himself sort of uh, look better or get off the hook. I, I found him to be genuine about that because that was a real a real world experience for him. He And, and that goes back to what I was saying about him being uneducated and, and having it be awkward um, in Cuba where his family grew up under Fidel Castro. Yeah. Um, the only folks who were allowed to have arms were either military personnel or state police, which, you know, state police is something like the KGB, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a security agency in name only. Um, you know, certainly someone, uh, a body that imposed themselves on everyday Cubans. Right. You don't want to life. compare them to the fine state police troopers we have Absolutely here in Rhode not. Island. Um, right. You know, and in Germany at that time, Germans were allowed to carry arms. Hitler discriminated against Jews. He did not allow Jews to right. carry arms. Right. Um, they would have been wildly outnumbered by Germans anyway. Uh, you know, they even if Jews were armed at that time, they would have had no chance uh, to fight that regime. Right. Um, you know, and it, it, it's just it was just such an awkward, uninformed comparison that he attempted to make. Um, you know, it just it, it took away any sort of credibility from his argument. I support his right to carry a gun if that's what he wants to do. It's in the Constitution. We have our jobs because of the First Amendment. Sure. Um, you know, we have the right to have this discussion on a podcast, and we have the right to write something in print tomorrow or the next day or the next day about this topic or anything else. Um, you know, no one ever said that it was perfect. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure the founders didn't intend it to be perfect. It's a living, breathing, fluid document that can be interpreted different ways. Right. right. Um, you know, so I certainly support Martinez's right 
to carry a gun to arm himself to protect himself in any way that he sees fit. Uh, I would just ask, though, that in the future, if he's going to try to articulate that point, that he do it maybe from a little better informed, more educated place. My guess he's probably not going to uh, take to Instagram to uh, to uh, uh, voice his views uh, in in the future. I think it's just another example of why uh, professional athletes probably should stay off of social media. Well, but, he, and and he sort of retreated to that position uh, toward the end of his remarks on the field. Yeah. He said, "I'm not here to start a movement. I'm not here to be a politician." I'm here to play baseball. And to me, that's sort of the, the lazy sort of sidestep to try and, and extricate yourself from a tough position. Um, so that fell a little flat for me, too. Um, you know, I would say that if, if you're going to make a statement like that and you know it might be a little bit controversial, stand up for it. Yeah. Support it. Yeah. You know, but make sure that you're standing on solid, educated, factual ground. That's all. Yep. yep. That's fair. Uh, so uh, before we wrap up uh, the uh, this week's twin bills, uh, I just wanted to touch upon the September schedule for the uh, for the Red Sox here. It's as they, very good as they close out the season. It's probably the toughest month all year when you look at the matchups. Yeah, you're going to uh, well, you're wrapping up uh, in Chicago uh, this weekend, and then you're going to Atlanta, who are in first place. Yeah, you are you're going to be hosting Houston, who are in first place. Uh, you got a stretch there with the Blue Jays and the Mets, uh, so we'll probably see a lot of Paw Sox players during that stretch. They are not in first <laughs> no. place. Either team. But then you have uh, three games at Yankee Stadium and three games at Cleveland. Uh, all of uh, you know, all of those games uh, should be should be good contests. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be a um, you know, it's going to be a tough month here. But again, you're going into it with eight and a half games uh, up uh, up in the standings. Yeah, and the last time you played Cleveland, obviously you split with them. Yeah, um, you won two out of three against Atlanta earlier this year when they came to Fenway Park. That'll be a difficult series, uh, you know, mainly because you have a day game on Monday and. Atlanta at the beginning of September isn't exactly the coolest place to be in the world. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, that's that's going to take a toll on the players, their legs, uh, you know, how they feel, certainly. Um, you know, then going to Cleveland and, and playing the Yankees will be very difficult. Obviously, Houston is trying to do the same thing that Boston is trying to do, sort of fight off those wild card contenders, whether they be Oakland or uh, Seattle, mm-hmm. I know for a while there, Houston was backsliding quickly. Uh, and they sort of found it a little bit here, and Oakland's had a couple injuries on their pitching staff. Sean Manaya and Brett Anderson have both hit the DL right. uh, at the worst time possible. Yeah, uh, but that's, so. that's, the, that's still the tightest race in the American League. I mean, they're, they've got a two-and-a-half game lead on Oakland, whereas the, you know, the other two divisions aren't the nearly as close. You, you figure that Houston, you know, in light of those injuries, Houston is going to be able to hold off Oakland and I I don't think Seattle has enough either Um, Cleveland you go to Cleveland Cleveland could be in a position to clinch the AL Central while you're there that's true in the third week of September Uh, they have the biggest lead of any division leader in baseball right now comfortably ahead 14 games as uh, as we sit here right now is that you have those standings in front of you is the rest of that division under 500 uh yes yeah Minnesota is in the second place and they're at four sixty six right so Detroit so, Chicago and Kansas City are well below five hundred I mean and you've got at the bottom of that division you've got two of the worst teams in baseball right. Chicago and Kansas City yeah. uh, so Cleveland has sort of spread that out like everyone expected them to do mm-hmm. if they have a fifteen sixteen game lead uh, you know going into September they're going to have that wrapped up so you wonder how they'll play the Red Sox in those three games yeah that's a good question you yeah. know that Boston at that point though if they're still seven or eight up. 
they're going to be able to smell the finish line at sure. that point. And I, and I think that really, when the calendar flips to September 1st, I think you might see a little response from the Red Sox in that way. Alex Carr has talked about September 1st and refocusing throughout the season. Uh, it's a philosophy he got from Robin Ventura with the Dodgers in the early 2000s, where then you start to count the games and the magic number and how many you need to win and how many the team behind you needs to lose. And I think that might energize the Red Sox in a certain way. And I think it might sort of kickstart that drive through September into the postseason in October. Well, it will certainly be uh, exciting to watch here as they get into the uh, the final stretch of the season. I, I still find it remarkable that here we are uh, on August uh, 31st, and uh, they have won 93 games. And how many How many games did they win last year? 93 games. Yeah, so they still have 27 games to go. So it's 2016. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think they also won 93. Games. Right. <laughs> You're right. And uh, so this time they they do it before the end of August, which is just uh, you know it's mind boggling. No, it's staggering. It's it just, really is. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, and, and I know the league has a competitive balance problem sure. and whatever, but. To be serial winners like this, it's just been unbelievable to watch. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're still they're playing just under 700 baseball. I think 689 is the winning percentage. And you're right, there's, there's obviously competitive balance issues here, some really bad teams. But, uh, you, know, you know, still the Red Sox figure out uh, how to win games that look like they're out of it. Um, so uh, we'll see how they react here for the last four weeks. But uh, it will definitely be a fun ride, I think, into the playoffs. And we'll see uh, how they make out. As we've said all season, the true proving ground here is not how many games they win and whether they win the division, which obviously they should win. And they should probably get to somewhere around 110, 108, somewhere around there. Mm. Uh, but what happens in October, right? That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So we will be watching. We will be talking. And we hope you guys uh, join us again. And that will wrap up this week's Twin Bills podcast. As always, thanks, Bill. Thank you, Bill.